very much, Chuck. My name is Keith Lemon Alcoholic. And uh, I was privileged to speak at the first meeting of uh, this roundup many years ago and took part in many others. Chairman, I've probably spoken here three, four times. Someone in the back said, uh, you change your story. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> he was serious. <laughs> he said, I've heard it too many times. And I said, well, I don't want to tell lies. I, I can't change it. I'll have to do it, so you'll have to listen again. But he, he probably left. <laughs> uh, tonight is a sort of an emotional night for me because a mock shooter that was one of the leaders that started this roundup was March 26, 1956, and I was privileged to be a sponsor. And so uh, I think about that night. And we walked a lot of miles together. And they used to mistake us for each other. And Mark used to think that was funny. Because <laughs> one night I spoke at, on a Friday night, and, and this lady walked up to him the next morning, and she said, that's a beautiful talk you gave last night. Man, oh man, I've never heard of anybody talk about the steps like that. Mark is speaking that night. <laughs> and he said, uh, if you think the speaker was good last night, <laughs> wait till you hear the guy tonight. <laughs> so there was a regional form here and uh, Mark was very sick and he snuck into the hotel and but somebody saw him sneak in and so a bunch of us were up in his room and we went over to the Winnipeg Club or something for dinner and Mark would start the stories about what had happened between he and I and he'd make me finish them. And you know, when you see your buddy dying, and uh, you, you don't feel very much like telling funny stories. <laughs> and so I told the one that I just told you, and he said, did that ever happened to you, see? <laughs> and I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it happened today. <laughs> I said, I got off the plane, and this sweet lady, elderly lady, beautifully dressed, she walks up and she said, hey, you're my cheater, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, why don't you just, you know, talk. <laughs> <laughs> I finally got even with him. <laughs> Last night I said, it says here to speak slow, and it says that again, talk slow. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a motivational speaker and I talk fast but reminds me of a story. Doesn't really, I intended to tell how long, but... Uh, but a, a minister that was uh, going to try to make some money for his church, and he set his congregation out selling Bibles. One lady come back and she sold three Bibles, another one came in and she sold six, another one seven, another one eight. One guy came in and he sold 43 Bibles. Man, oh man. 
The minister called the whole congregation in and he just tell us how you sold 143 Bibles. And he said, well, it was like this. <laughs> I would walk up to the door and I would ring the doorbell. When they came to the door, I would say, I am selling Bibles. Would you like to buy one? Or would you sooner that I read it to you? I'm not selling Bibles, but I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and what happened to me. I'm not going to tell you a lot about my drinking because I'm just going to tell you that I did drink. I didn't get here by mistake. I did drink. And uh, in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a pretty good book, I hope it catches on one of these days and everybody starts reading it. But it says that in the, in the doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It says the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth and the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And then it says they are restless, irritable, and discontent. You were that way once. <laughs> That's what happened to me when I was 16 years old. I came from a farm home. Wasn't a big wealthy home, but it was, we had enough to eat and had a pretty fair education. But when I was 16 years old, I got restless, irritable, and discontent. I didn't like the disc in my home, didn't like the disc in my church, didn't like the disc in my school. And so I decided that I was going to get away from this. So I joined the army. <laughs> it really wasn't one of my smartest moves, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I had never drank. I'd never had a drink to my knowledge. That night I got my big uniform on and I went downtown with the rest of the men and we went into the beer parlor. And I had a beer. Ooh, <laughs> great things happened. All of a sudden, I was a great conversationalist. <laughs> All of a sudden, I had muscles. <laughs> Somebody said something I didn't like, and I told them where he could have it. <laughs> then we went dancing. <laughs> oh, my God, you should have seen me. <laughs> I was Canada's own Fred Astaire. <laughs> For the benefit of you young people, he was a great dancer. <laughs> then I took a girl home. And I was 
the great lovers of those days, Clark Gable, Charles Boyer, and I was all of them bound up in one. But the next morning, I was that scared little boy that had come in from the farm to join the army the day before. But every night, I could go downtown with the rest of the men and be what I wanted to be. And I did well in the army. I became an instructor. Went to divert Nova Scotia for training. I was doing really well. But I got kicked out when I was 17. <laughs> I went back home and I got a job in an aircraft factory building Tiger Moth. And a real good job, paid real good, best job I ever had because I hadn't had a job before. <laughs> and so, but all of a sudden I got some responsibility. And I didn't like responsibility, and I became restless, irritable, and discontented, and I ran once again. Guess what I did? I ran back into the army. <laughs> Told them I'd never been in before, and this time I was a genius. I'd been an instructor before. And here I get in, and I'm telling all these dummies what to do, and I became an instructor. Got recommended for my commission. I'd love to stand here and tell you I was an officer in the Canadian Navy, Canadian Army, but I got kicked out when I was 18. <laughs> I went back home and I got a job in a newspaper selling advertising. Good job. I liked it. Out in the street all the time meeting people, and I was pretty good at it. But then I got too much responsibility, and once again, I ran. I got restless, irritable, and discontent. And I ran into the Navy. I, I mean, I was stupid. <laughs> and uh, they recognized me right away that I was a pretty smart guy because I had been an instructor, and all of a sudden I got recommended for my commission, got sent away to officer's training in Eastern Canada, Got married when I was 19 years old. Beautiful little girl. Still married to her. <laughs> I know it's not popular today to do that, but... <laughs> but uh, uh, it's not my fault, believe me. And <laughs> she's still there. <laughs> and I went to Oscar Creek. And I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in the Canadian Navy. <laughs> but I got kicked out of the Canadian Navy. <laughs> I didn't really get kicked out. I just was told that I was what they call a CW, commission worthy. I had to go back to sea for six months and come back and they guaranteed me that I would get my commission if I took the course again. But by this time, I'd been drinking and I'd become rebellious. Any of you ever identify with that? <laughs> and I was thinking something like this. They can shove their commission. I would show them, you know. And I heard that if you became a gunner on a merchant ship, that you got extra money. So I took a gunnery course, and I became a gunner on a merchant ship. And I started going across the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> and those German submarines didn't like us taking those merchant ships across the Atlantic Ocean, and I understand now why they paid extra money. money. 
He hit me and I hit the cement floor and I got up and he hit me and I hit the cement floor and we did that just a whole bunch of times. <laughs> and finally, I stayed down because I couldn't get up. <laughs> it, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I wasn't a stupid drunk. I knew that. If you can't get up, stay down. So, and they took me to the hospital. I was 27 years old, and they took me to the hospital, and there wasn't anybody came to see me. None of my good drinking friends, none of my family, and I, I thought, well, I guess people just don't know where I am, you know. <laughs> Fortunately for me, my, my, my doctor was a doctor I'd been in the service with, and the day before I was getting out of hospital, he said, Cease, I built you up physically, the rest's up to you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, I was in the service with you. You should have had your commission. You didn't because you were drinking. And he said, I think you're an alcoholic because it's got worse since you got home. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, I think you should join Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm 27 years old. And he just walked out, left me there. All day long, I'd lay there and I thought, about what he said. Now, I I had different ideas about alcoholics and us, but I knew what he told me was the truth, and that's bad. I was something like uh, the three alcoholic rabbits. I don't know whether you got alcoholic rabbits down here or not. I'm not talking about ordinary Saturday night drunk rabbits. I'm talking about real, genuine alcoholic rabbits. And there were three of them. And they were called foot and foot, foot and foot, foot, foot. <laughs> and foot, foot, used to foot, foot, foot. And she says, let's pick a bowl foot, we'll get out of the bar. Foot, 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 they pick up old foot, they go down the bar. And one night, foot, foot, was sitting down to foot, foot, foot. And foot, 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 said to foot, foot, what do you think? Where's old foot? And foot, foot, said to foot, foot, foot. He said, well, he heard just a minute ago, he went outside. The foot, foot, and foot, 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 they went outside, found poor old foot, foot, dead. And foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, what do you think we should do with foot? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot. Well, he said, I think we should take a little, you know, funeral home. After two minutes, foot, foot, said to foot, foot, foot. What do you think old foot died from? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot. Well, he said, I think maybe he's alcoholic. And foot, foot, said to foot, foot, foot. He said, do you think we're alcoholic? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot. He said, well, we're drinking quite a bit. Foot, foot, said to foot, foot, foot. He said, do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, 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 said to foot, foot. Might as well. He says, we had one foot in the grave anyway. thinking that I went one foot in the grave before he come into this deal. But that night, that, that night, that very night, the Friday night, two people came to see me. Uninvited. They just walked in. And they, I knew both of them, and they were dressed up, and they were clean, and they looked good, and they told me about themselves. They didn't talk down to me. They told me about themselves. And I think that's so important. 
when you go on a 12-step call, look good and don't talk about them, talk about yourself so that they'll identify with you. And they said uh, that they were going to have an emergency meeting the next morning. In those days, when they got a live one, they had an emergency meeting. <laughs> and and they, they asked me if I would go to it, because I was getting out of the hospital next morning. And I thought, you know, they're pretty kind fellows. I knew both of them, and I said, yeah, I'll go to it. But this was before Medicare, and I had a little problem. I'd given a bad check to this little Catholic nun, and I'm a Protestant, and because I was a Protestant and she knew that, she wanted her money. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how I'd get this money, and the only person that I could figure out if my credit was any good with was my bootlegger. <laughs> and he was a taxi driver, and I phoned him to come and get me to drive me to this emergent meeting. And then I told him that I needed this money, and by golly, he gave it to me, and I told it to this lady, and I was going to say some other things to her, but I didn't. And, and I went to this meeting. At that time, there were 15 people in Alcoholics Anonymous in Prince Albert. The meeting was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and every one of them came, all 15 of them. And I knew all 15 of them. You see, they were looking for members then, I mean. <laughs> and they got a live one, boy, they were all there. And I, I liked what they said. I, liked, I really liked what they said. And then they said they'd take me home. And I said, oh, no, no, Sally, don't, don't take me home. Because I'd been away a few times from my house before, and people would take me home. And, and that little Scottish girl I'm married to, she would run them off and say bad things to me and to them. And so I thought, well, I got these friends. I don't want to spoil it. And so I said, no, I can get home by myself. Fortunately for me, uh, there was no Al-Anon at that time. Now, I don't mean, mean that long. There was no Al-Anon, but it hadn't been formed yet. I mean. and, uh, but fortunately for me, the ladies, uh, some of the, uh, the wives of some of the members had been up to tell Babe what I was going to try to do. And I walked into the house, and you know what? She kissed me. <laughs> and she said, I think everything is going to be okay, hon. <laughs> My God, if nothing else, I stayed in AA that day because she changed already. This <laughs> 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 is <different> for me. <laughs> that night we went to our first AA gathering. Now, this was a Saturday night, just like this, 16th of January, 1952. And I uh, was 27 years old, and we get in there, and even the two guys that had come to see me had got older. <laughs> there were a bunch of old people there. And, and they, had, they had a social first. <laughs> and they played games. And they played pin the tail on the donkey. <laughs> on a Saturday night. Can you imagine that? Oh, my God. I thought, what are they doing, and what, what, what am I doing here? And then I looked, and baby's just having a great time. She's having a great time, pinning the tail on the donkey. 
And they had a meeting. And after that, and after the meeting, a couple of guys took me into another room. There were two rooms, the thing, and the kitchen, and took me in there. And he said, uh, Cease, uh, you have to get a sponsor. And I saw a guy sitting there that I drank with a bit, and he was dressed up, and he was looking pretty good. And I thought he'd been sober a long time, so his name is Elmer. And I went to Elmer, and I said, will you be my sponsor? Turned out to sponsor. Elmer was sober 10 days. <laughs> he didn't even know what a sponsor was. <laughs> but thank God he said yes. <laughs> and he's still my sponsor. And he lets me know. <laughs> And then Bobby said, you've got to buy a big book. I said, Bobby, I haven't got any money. He said, it's four dollars and you can buy it on the installment plan. <laughs> How much can you afford a week? Can you afford 50 cents a week? And I said, I can afford 50 cents a week. So I bought my first book, 50 cents a week. Thank God I did. And you know, it was such a, such a great night. I mean, Babe and I talked about it when we went home. But but then they, this little Bobby, he was a talkative guy, and, and he gave me some things that I had to use, some little tools. He gave me the word how. He said, that's for honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And he said, you think you can handle it? <laughs> I said, well, I was pretty fair. You know, three letters, I should be able to handle that. <laughs> and uh, I mean, because I'm looking around and I figured I was smarter than every one of them anyway. And, and so, that, that's honesty. Now, I think everybody's basically honest, you know? But sometimes, if it's to our advantage, especially financially, we can be the other way. Now, I heard a story about a, a really, really successful businessman. And he had a mute bookkeeper. And he got thinking, I wonder, is this bookkeeper honest? And he went back for six months every night. He checked the books and he figured it out. He was $50,000 short. And thought, well, how am I going to talk to this man? So he knew a man that knew sign language. So he brings the man in, he tells him his story, and he brings his bookkeeper in, and he said, ask him where my $50,000 is. And the guy says, he wants to know where his $50,000 is. <laughs> and the guy says, I don't know. He said, what did he say? He says, he doesn't know. Ask him again. He said, he really wants to know where his $50,000 is. And the guy said, don't know. What did he say? He said, he doesn't know. The guy took a gun and put it on the table. And he says, you tell him I'm going to shoot him if he doesn't tell him where my $50,000 is. He said, he's going to shoot you if you don't tell him where his $50,000 is. <laughs> and the guy says, I don't know. So the guy says, what did he say? And he said, he doesn't know. The guy took the gun and put it right up to the guy's, right to the temple. And he says, tell him he's got 30 seconds, and if he doesn't tell him, boom, he's history. And he says, if you don't tell him in 30 seconds, he's going to shoot you. And the guy, the guy says, 
it's, it's, it's in a tin can underneath the oak tree in the backyard. <laughs> and the guy said, what did he say? He said, he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they told me that there were two meetings a week and that they expected me to be at two meetings a week. And I went to two meetings a week. And in those days, they talked a whole lot about drinking because they had to, because they didn't know anything about this big book. But Elmer and I started to study this big book. He'd come over to the house and Dave and Gertie would play cards and Elmer and I'd go this and we'd go to their house and we do the same thing. And finally, we, a guy came to town. His name was Ernie. Now, he was from out of town, so naturally he must know everything about Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and so, we asked him if he would share the meetings for the next three months. And he says, I'll share them, providing you do one thing. And we said, what's that? We, as a group, will go through the steps and we'll do them in sequence. Now, we won't study them. We're going to do them. Well, we thought we'd zoom all Ernie along, so we decided to do that. And that's the story I'm going to share with you tonight. The story about how we did the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Went to the first meeting, and it told us to bring our big books. Ernie sent us home, told us to read the first 58 pages. Now, the first 58 pages, you can read that pretty fast. There's nothing to it. But if you think you're going to get an examination on it, <laughs> there's something to it. And I'd phone Elmer and I'd say, what do you think he's going to ask us? <laughs> Elmer would say, I don't know. And Elmer, he'd study his book for a while. And he said, he may ask us something about that. And we'd study that. Boy, we got all juiced up for him. And we went for the first meeting didn't ask us a question. <laughs> all he said is, did everybody read the first 58 pages? Boom, we all put our hands up. And that was it. We did all that study immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and he said, okay, tonight we're going to do step one. Well, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. And by this time, they all knew my story pretty good. And they knew that I was powerless over alcohol and I had an unmanageable life. And they just sort of said, we know you, Corville, you, 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 got, you know, you qualify there, don't worry about it. Don't. And, <laughs> but that's pretty hard step if you really look at, you know, you're powerless over alcohol. I was a fast drinker, and I, I, but I got in trouble. And I had an unmanageable life because I got in a lot of trouble. So we, we all agreed with Ernie that we were powerless over alcohol and we had an unmanageable life. And he said, okay, go, go home and next week we're going to take step two. And we, we come back the next week where, you know, it says, uh, can't believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So I said to Ernie, like those days there weren't any treatment centers. So I thought if you're going to be restored to sanity, you must have been in an insane asylum. So I said, Ernie, I've never been in a mental hospital. 
So how can I come back from somewhere I haven't been? That's <laughs> tricky, isn't it? And then he said, look, Cargo, just do the step. Just do the step, you know. Just look at it. Came to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And he said, I mean insane thinking. And uh, I don't know whether you do this down here or not, but back home, especially at that time, a lot of people used to do, uh, I call it the shady dozen. And they, they would sit around trying to help somebody that wasn't there. <laughs> you know, and they'd say, I heard, <laughs> they say, everybody said, have you heard? Isn't that awful? People say, did you ever? <laughs> somebody said, would you think? Don't say I told you. <laughs> oh, I think it's terrible. <laughs> and I could do that. God, I could sit around trying to help someone who wasn't there all day long. And Ernie said, no, 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 that's not what it means. He said, you know, we've got to do it a little bit differently now. So we had a big look at it, Elmer and I, and we we decided that by golly maybe if we would you know and I believed in prayer because three nights before I got beat up I heard babe praying please get Cecil sober <laughs> and she prayed bad and loud and hard because that guy really beat me up <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I don't think that she meant to do it that way, but that's what happened. <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 the whole deal, deal is, you know, that, that this, this thing about this second step, it, you know, it's, the thing is, we're, we're negative people. I don't care who you are, if you're just coming into AA, if you're in AA a long time and you haven't done the step, you're still negative. And the only way you're going to get positive is by doing the, the steps in sequence. And that's what we had to do. And this, this uh, Elmer, Ernie told us to keep it simple. And uh, we decided to do that, Elmer and I. And uh, I have a guy that has a ranch back home. And another friend said to him, uh, how'd you get the name of your ranch? And he said, well, I wanted to call it the Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the Bar Susie Q. My daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we called it the Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. <laughs> and the guy said, that's a great deal, but where are the cattle? <laughs> he said, none of them ever survived the branding. <laughs> so that's what will happen to you. You know, just that happens if you're negative. You've probably heard the story about the negative barber. And that's the way I was. A guy slid into the barber chair one day and he said, Last hair, want a haircut? Last was three weeks. Barber said, Why three weeks? He said, I'm going on vacation. The barber said, Where are you going? First of all, he said, I'm going to London, England. 
The Bible says you're not going to run in England. He said, I am. He said, you're not. I said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I you know. I've never been there, but I heard it's a lousy place to go. Too many people, too many cars. The guy said, I don't care if I don't like it, but I'm going to Paris. The Bible says you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. I said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you now. He said, I've never been there either, but he says, I heard that they really please the tourists. The guy said, look, it just cut my hair. If I don't like it there, I'm going to Rome. And the Bible says, you're not going to Rome. He said, I am. He said, you're not. I said, I am. Wouldn't go there, Rabbi. He said, a lot of Catholics. <laughs> and he said, I don't care. I'm a Catholic. Yeah, but he said, I heard a different kind of a Catholic over there. Three weeks later, the guy come back, straight into the barber chair, the barber said, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, it was. He said, it was. He said, you didn't go to London. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. Love to say that I would have wanted to go down to Paris. He said, you didn't go to Paris. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. Love to say that I would have wanted to go down to Rome. He said, he said, you didn't go to Rome. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, I got an audience of the Pope. And he says, you didn't. And he said, I did. He said, you didn't. And he says, you'll never believe what the Pope said. I bent down, knelt down to kiss the Pope's ring, and you'll never believe what the Pope said. And the barber says, what? And he says, where the hell did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> so, we took step two and three pretty fast because he explained the negative part of it and the simplicity. I went home with step three where, you know, it says that you... Turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him, not as you understand him, but as you understood him. I went downstairs and I got on my knees and I said, God, I've done a bad job of managing my life. I will give him a hand. And that was, I kept it just as simple as that. And it must have worked because things started to work for him. Next week, Ernie came and he brought a pencil and a paper for every one of us. And we said, what's this about? And he said, well, we're going to take step four. And he says, I heard a guy once was supposed to take a step four, and he couldn't find a pencil and a paper. <laughs> so we've eliminated that. <laughs> Just go home and take this book and look at page 65, I think it is. And he said, there's a chart there to take it from, and just go ahead and take it from that chart. He said, it's as simple as that. And we went home, and I'm resentful at, and you did boom, 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 all around. And we did all did our step four. We phoned each other, and we did our step four. Everybody come back, and I asked Ernie if he wanted to look at mine. No, Ernie said, that's, that's your business. And I, I was kind of insulted there because I'd done such a fabulous job. I don't think I'm going to have a look. <laughs> and so, anyway, he said, now we're going to do step five. You know where we have to admit to... Uh, God, himself, another human being, the exact nature of their wrongs. And uh, that's uh, something, uh, now there's some Americans here tonight, and the Americans take it with their sponsor. Not all Americans, some Americans. <laughs> and, and but now, this book that I bought for 50 cents a week, was printed in the United States. And in this book, on page 74, it says, rightly and naturally, we think well before we choose the person or persons with whom to take this 
intimate and confidential step. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination, which requires confession, I imagine that's the Catholic, <laughs> must and of course will want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. Though we have no religious connection, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find that a, such a person quick to see and understand our problem. It doesn't say anything about a sponsor. As a matter of fact, Bill Wilson didn't mention sponsor in this book. Because Ebby was his sponsor. And they, Bill didn't want anybody to know that he had a drunken sponsor. <laughs> so it's not in there. <laughs> so, so I just don't think that... And I wouldn't take a fifth step with old Elmer. He's a blabbermouth. <laughs> so, the whole town would have known about it. And I went to an ordained minister. Protestant, of course, had a little chat with him, and Gully, you know, he, he, he and I got along pretty good. He'd been sort of a orangutang himself, <laughs> admitted a few things to me, <laughs> and we had, a, we had a good time, and, uh, but I was glad we took it, and then he knew about the big book, and he said, now do you know what to do, and I told him yes, and I read, went read home, went home and read, step six and seven. Now, step six and seven, you know, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Everybody talks about step four and about step five. They think it's a big deal, and they forget all about step six and seven. You see, we've, we've admitted we're powerless over alcohol, our lives have become unmanageable, you know, we can't believe in a power greater than ourselves. We turned our will and our lives over to the care of this power. We took an inventory of ourselves. We went and discussed it with another human being. Now, what are we going to do? It says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Are we ready to get well? That's exactly what it says. And then it says, humbly ask them to remove our shortcomings. I had a difficult time praying. I didn't have a difficult time praying. I had a difficult time getting down on my knees to pray. But today I don't think that I can be humble unless I get down on my knees to pray. And steps six and seven are the most overlooked steps in the book because people have put so much emphasis on step four and five that they forget that, you know, we're afraid of becoming too good too fast. Don't worry about that. <laughs> that is no problem in Alcoholics Anonymous or Alamance. That's no trouble at all. Then. I heard a story about little Johnny. His mother caught him playing with himself. Now, you know, some of the stuff we watch on television now, we, I sh we shouldn't worry about talking about something like that. And she said, Johnny, if you don't stop doing that, he's, she says, you're going to go blind. <laughs> and Johnny said, well, can I keep it up until I need glasses? <laughs>
And you know, I told this story one time over in Tamloop, and when I was finished, there was about 400 people there, and this dear old lady from the back, she looked like she was the president of the, that deal that tried to stop whiskey, you know? Uh, and, and, and she headed right towards me, and I said, oh my God, maybe I shouldn't have told that story. And she said, young man, this was quite a few years ago, young man, she said, I really like the way you took us through the steps. I particularly like that story about little John. But she said, did you notice when you looked around how many alcoholics were wearing glasses? I did step five and six, and got along pretty well. Five, six, and seven, I mean. And then old Ernie said, okay, now we got to make another list of all the people we've harmed, which I'm willing to make amends for them all. And that step wasn't too difficult for me, as a matter of fact, because I'd harmed a lot of people, and I kind of wanted to get at them. And I made that list. And I'd harmed a lot of people, and I put it down there. And we went on to the next step. You know, it was step nine, and I, I, I got right at that, too, because, you see, they promise you freedom. And in the promises, on page 83, it shows you exactly what you're entitled to in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, a lot of people don't know what they're entitled to. But if you do step, because it comes right after step nine, this, these promises. And I, I'm totally unscarred by education, but boy, I can believe what's in this book. And it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past and wish to shut the door. We will comprehend the word, oh, went two pages, serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I, now you all know those promises. You read them all the time. I just wanted to read them to show you I can read them without glasses. Step nine starts to really give us the freedom. The freedom when you can walk down the street and not be afraid to meet people. Where you can go to any place you want to go because you've made those amends. The freedom where things start to work better at your house. Where people start to trust you. And you've said you're sore. And all of those things. And so many people miss that. They just don't do it. And then they say, well, 
I'll do it when I get the opportunity. That is not what it says. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in the book that says that. Wait till you get the opportunity. It tells you to do it. And thank God that Ernie told us to do it. I wrote letters. I phoned people. I went to see people. And you know that when I used to go down Central Avenue in Prince Albert, not a, such a big city, 40,000 people. Now when I sobered out, it's about 20,000 people. It's about a half a mile down the main drag. Before I took my step nine, it was about four miles. <laughs> because I had to duck in. If I saw someone coming, I had to go on a stove. Sometimes I'd have to go to a back alley. I, I even owed money to people in the back alley. <laughs> so it, it, now I can walk down any street in the world and not be worried about it. Because I have made my amends. Step 10 told me that I had to continue to take personal inventory. And when I was wrong, promptly admitted. Each and every day, I do a step 10. I found this the other day, a picture of Bill and Bob. They were kind of important in our organization. And I was talking about keeping it simple. And, and you know, and, and it says, if I don't drink today, I won't need one tomorrow. <laughs> That's from Bill and Bob. Isn't that something, eh? <laughs> and if somebody wants that, they can have it because it's pretty good. I don't need it anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, step 10, where we continue to take personal inventory, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I do readings every day. And I'm not ashamed of these readings. I do them. And I'm going to share them with you. And it's page 86, 87, and 88. Page 63, the third step prayer. Page 76, the seventh step prayer. Page 83 and 84, the promises, which I read to you. Page 132, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Page 164, the last two paragraphs, where we trudge down the... We don't gallop, we trudge down the deal of happy destiny. Page 449, it's different now in the big book, but page 449 to 52, 452, on acceptance. That is a fabulous deal. And then page 99 of the 12 by 12, and that's changed too in the new one, is St. Francis Prayer. I used to talk, to talk about this, and people would come up and they'd say, would you give us the those pages. <laughs> and you know, people come up and want to shake hands with you, and, and you're, you're writing, and they're writing. And so finally, I had these little cards made up. And then, and then everybody wanted the card. And it got pretty expensive. <laughs> and, and I was over in Chicago, and I did a, a weekend deal for them there on, on Friday night. I told my story on Saturday morning. I told the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, Saturday Saturday night I did the traditions, and on Sunday morning I did uh, service and uh, whatever goes along with service. I don't know, something else anyway. But it, it was a pretty successful deal. And, uh, and, you know, when I got back home, my roommate phoned me and he said, we want that deal that you gave us. I give them all this deal. They said, we want that deal on tape. And I said, well, put it on tape. No, they said, we want your voice. And I thought, well, let's forget about that. A week later, they said, what about the tape? 
So I said, well, I haven't done yet. Three days later, this old Irishman, he phones again. He said, look, I was your roommate, and the guy said, it's up to me to get that tape. Please, get it. So I went to the radio station, and I made the tape about this. Then they played nice music behind, and it's all on there. And as a matter of fact, don't ask me for this. It's on tape right over there. <laughs> you can buy it, and you can play it on your way to work in the morning. You can play it when you're having a shower. You can play it while you're washing dishes. You can play it while you're doing anything. And I'll tell you what, you'll have a better day. Just ask for its prayer and meditation. I cease. <laughs> Isn't that great? God almighty. I, you know, I, I did a lot of things in AA. I also wrote a book. Everybody in my group said, gee, she should write a book. And I, I, they kept asking me. So finally, I, I wrote a book. It's called The Daily Spiritual Guidebook. First page says, get up and pray. <laughs> Second page says, get dressed. <laughs> Next page says, don't drink and go to meetings. Next page says, do the steps in sequence. And then the next page says, get a job. <laughs> and the next page says, help someone else. The last page says, pray and go to bed. <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> it's not conference approved yet, but... <laughs> I think it'll be a seller. Really do. And I want to share something else with you that my grandmother taught me. And but be careful when you do this one. My grandma taught me this little prayer. And I try to say it every night. And the prayer is, please God, treat me tomorrow like I treated people today. Ooh, that's dangerous, isn't it? <laughs> Just try it. Try it for a few days. It's really great. <laughs> Tell you what, you can walk around smiling and, you know, you, no matter what people do to you, well, smile back. <laughs> anyway, step 10, I did, I do a step 10 on a daily basis. I read page 86, 87, and 88, you know, and it's, it's fabulous what it tells you. It tells you exactly how to live that day. And then, came to that step 11. Do you know that step 11 has 17 more words in it than any other step? So I told you I'm totally unscarred by education. But I figured it out, maybe it's 17 words more important than the other steps. So I do step 11. The words sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Praying only for the knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. Fabulous step. Just a fabulous step. And it makes you happy and it makes you feel good with other people. And I do it like, now, I told you that I was, well, I didn't tell you, but I was born in a little Catholic town. And I was a Protestant. And that's a bad place to be born when you're a Protestant. And, and I... My two daughters got married to Catholics. <laughs> Italian ones, they're the worst kind. <laughs> and I write spaghetti. <laughs> and you 
know, they, they, they got a hockey player. He just got a scholarship in Michigan. He, he's my favorite, 19 years old, and, and Babe was giving him a hat the other day, and I said, look, Babe, we got married when we were 19. You know, the kid's growing up. But his, the, you know what they named him? Giovanni. <laughs> Imagine tying that on a kid and expecting him to stay sober. <laughs> I'm giving an inferiority complex. His last name is Flaminio. <laughs> he can't find. He said, to, "Babe said to him, what is the right letter?" He says, "I can't find an envelope big enough to put my return address on." <laughs> but he's he, all the grandchildren, and now we've got a great grandchild. They call him Cruz. <laughs> I've never heard of a name like that, but Cruz. But he's going to be great. And you know that when I was telling Babe one day about the guys that came to see me, I said, when they came to see you, those, those ladies that came to see you, did they tell you that one day I may be Citizen of the Year in Prince Albert, and I may belong to the Sports Hall of Fame in Prince Albert? And she said, no, and I never gave it any thought either. But I want you to know that in 1984, they made me the Citizen of the Year in Prince Albert. <laughs> On the 23rd of November, I got inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame. And, and some people think that there's no rewards in alcoholics now. I'll tell you, I'm the luckiest man in the world. And then it says, what that beautiful 12th step. Having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps, what steps are they talking about? The previous 11 in sequence. We tried to carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Tells us exactly what we gotta do and exactly how to live and exactly how to stay sober. And that's all we have to do. I was out there this morning and I sat down beside a guy and I, we get talking and he said, uh, how long you been sober? And I said, 51 years. And he said, I've been sober 21 days. So we had a chat. And you know, that's what the 12th step is all about. Regardless of who they are, what they are, how long they're sober, if they want to talk, it's up to us to talk to them. And they know that if there's anything wrong with Alcoholics Anonymous, it's sponsorship. There's people aren't sponsoring people good enough. They're taking them to Alcoholics Anonymous and they're dumping them and they're leaving them there. We have the opportunity to serve lives, to give a new life to families. We have that great opportunity. So let's do it whether we're in Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever we're in. Let's, let's just, let's do it. And you know, I feel some bad sometimes when I, when I read something from General Service Office and I see that, you know, different people don't send money in to our General Service Office. That helps carry the message worldwide. The message that was given to us for free 
and we can go now worldwide. It's just gone into China. Mac used to say, we haven't done our job. There's four billion Chinese that don't even know this alcoholic economy. Just recently they got in there. So we have a big job to do, but it needs money. And the way they get money is by a small contribution from each one of us, not only to your district and your province, but also to the General Service Office. And I hope that if you don't know what it's about, that you go to somebody in your group and say, what was that idiot talking about? Money. He said, no, there's no dues or fees. What is he talking about? And find out what I was talking about and try to get some money in because we got a big job to do worldwide because there's people that don't even know this alcoholics anonymous. And I'm going to close with a little story. It's a story about a little boy and this daddy, he went to another guy and he said, I'm going to quit alcoholics anonymous. And the guy said, well, why are you going to quit? And he said, when I came in, they told me it wasn't going to cost me any money. Now they want money for a gratitude night. Someone's having a birthday party. We've got to go over and visit another group out of town. And we need money. We have to chip in on the gas. They pass the plate around every meeting. Pay for this and pay for that. And he said, must have lots of money. Then they want money to send off to New York. Why should we send money to New York? And he said, I'm getting sick and tired of it, and I'm going to quit. And the old member, for a little while, he sat there, and then he said, easy does quit. He said, you know, son, I don't blame you. Because your story reminds me of the story of my life. He said, when I was real young, my wife and I were blessed with a bouncing baby boy. My wife had to stay in hospital because of some complications. I had to take the kid home. I had to hire someone to look after the kid. I had to hire someone to look after my, my wife. Finally, we got my wife home and she got looking after the kid. But we had every time I went downtown, it seemed I had to buy something for the kid. Then he started to creep around and they wanted toys. And then he wanted a tricycle. And then he grew up out of the tricycle. He wanted a bicycle. Then he grew up a little bit more, and he wanted a motorcycle. Then he wanted an old car to take the girls out, money to buy sporting goods and everything, and go away to camps. And he said, I was like you. I was getting sick and tired of it, and I was like you. I felt I quit it. But then he said, in the final year of high school, that boy of ours died, and he hasn't cost me a penny since. Do what you like with that story, folks, but let's keep this alive. Thank you.